our church, Imperial Berean, we, we, we have our own mission statement. Did you know that? Here it is. I'll show it to you. Maybe I will. Click me one time there. There we go. I should be good now. Here's the mission for which this group of people this exists. The Berean Church of Imperial exists to please God. How? By examining the scriptures. For what? So that we can equip the saints and evangelize the lost. That is our mission statement. One time, I got called to task by a pastor because that's our mission. He was kind of offended by part of our mission statement. Can you guess which part? That we would call certain people lost. He found pretty offensive. And he was really uh, more concerned about something our website uh, explains our mission statement. So if you get on our website, this is part of what you'll find. It says, the Bible says that anyone who has not come to faith in Jesus Christ remains destined for God's wrath. John 3.36. The only way to avoid the wrath of God is to place one's faith in Jesus as Savior. This pastor, I was supposed to do something in his church, and he was concerned that somebody that had this kind of belief would be doing something there because he thought that sounded exclusive and kind of mean to talk about God as a God of wrath and that there are people, everyone who doesn't believe on Jesus has God's wrath on them. He he really didn't like that. The problem is, if we zero in on John 3.36, where we get that belief from, it says this, the one who believes, this is Jesus talking. He says, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. The one who rejects the Son will not see life, but God's wrath remains on him. So I want you to know this, this pastor was, was almost right that ideas like this are exclusive and terrible and mean. He's almost right. If, if what Jesus said in John 3.36 is true, and it is, then the gospel is exclusive. Exclusive just means some people are excluded. Not everybody is included. Jesus said, only those who believe in him escape God's wrath. That's what he said. And if God's wrath is anything, it's awful. It's terrible. So our mission and the message of the gospel in some ways is exclusive and there's part of it that is troubling. The question though is, is not, is that exclusive? Is it, is it terrible? The question we should ask is, is it true? Because if, if the gospel's true, that's what keeps the third part of that pastor's objection from being correct. He thought it was mean. 
if the gospel is true, if the only way anyone can avoid the wrath of God is by believing in Jesus, then the rest of what we say in this part of our website is also true. All of us here at Imperial Berean were once lost too. Everyone here is either formerly lost or currently lost. It's the only kind of people there are. But we say this on our website. We can't think of anything nicer we could do for someone else than to help them understand how they can move from a position of wrath from God into a position of grace from God. Here's what keeps the gospel from being mean. It is exclusive. And the wrath of God is terrible. But telling someone that is not mean. It's love. If it really is the only way someone can avoid standing under the wrath their sins deserve someday. It's a little bit like if I had a cancerous tumor growing in my body and it was going to kill me and a doctor knew that this cancer was going to kill me, it wouldn't be loving for that doctor to not tell me of the thing that was going to kill me. Well, that's too bad news. That's too harsh. I don't want to trouble him with that. Sometimes love requires difficult truth. Now I bring that up because we are in a difficult truth section of the book of Romans. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 make up the, the fourth section of the, the body of the book of Romans. And they're filled with difficult truth. Paul has started in chapter 9 to teach us about God's promises, to say something about God's promises to Israel. Here's the deal. God promised in the Old Testament to save Israel. But by Paul's day, Jesus has come. He's been crucified. He's rose again. He's commissioned Paul to go share the gospel and as Paul does that, here's what he's finding. His fellow Jews are rejecting the gospel. And so if the gospel's true, that means Israel, by and large, as they die as individual Israelites, their wrath is still, God's wrath is still on them. They face condemnation. They're not rescued. They're not saved because they reject the gospel. But God promised to save Israel, so what gives? That's why Paul writes this section, because that quickly becomes an issue for us. Because if God doesn't keep his promises to Israel to save Israel, how do we know God's going to keep his promises to us to save us through the gospel? So Paul writes this section to show how God is keeping his promise to Israel, even though most Israelites are not rescued, saved, redeemed, whatever you want to say. Here's where we pick up today. We pick up today, really, verse 24 is halfway through a long sentence. It's kind of a goofy place to start a, a sermon. So we're going to start reading at Romans 9, 22, actually, so we can go back to the beginning of the sentence. But Paul has been talking about this very difficult truth. There are some people whom Paul calls vessels of God's wrath, like containers 
for God's wrath. There are people who are going to be cast into wrath forever. It's terrible. And then there are others, and Paul calls vessels of mercy, holders, containers of God's mercy. That's where we ended last week's sermon. When we, as saved, rescued, redeemed people, paid for by the blood of Christ, when we see other people who are no better or no worse than us, cast into eternal judgment, wrath, and we know we were made from the same lump of clay as they, we will worship praise and honor God forever and ever for his mercy that he has on us because we will know we really deserve that. That's what Paul has just said. That's where we're going to start reading. And then we're going to read about who these vessels of mercy are, like the demographic makeup of these people who are saved. And it's, it's surprising to Paul and his Jewish contemporaries. That's what we're going to read about today. And we'll see what we can learn from that. Romans chapter 9, we'll start in, verses tw- in verse 22, though we're going to start our study in verse 24. It goes like this. Paul says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, what if he endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. And then Paul says, even us, that's us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call her beloved. Verse 26, And it shall be in that place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, has left us to pos- had left us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. That is our passage for today. We're going to start in verse 24, where Paul is answering this question. Who are these vessels of mercy, these saved folks that he told us about in verse 23? We know from the rest of the book of Romans, especially 1, 2, 3, and 4, that no one is a vessel of mercy. No one is a saved person unless they believe that when Jesus went to the the cross, he was standing in our place, having God's wrath poured out on him as as a substitute instead of God's wrath being poured out on us. Only those who believe that message are the, the rescued, the saved people. That much we know. But as Paul travels around sharing this message of the gospel, he's surprised by something predominantly the people who accept that message and become redeemed folks, vessels of mercy, they're not Jewish. They're not Israelites. They're Gentiles. 
And I want you to see Paul includes himself in this group, even us, Paul included. We've been called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. That is the church. What we call the church, the, the, the believers in Jesus Christ, those who by faith accept the gospel, were protected from God's wrath because his wrath was poured out on, on the substitute, Jesus, instead of us. That is the church. And it's a surprise. It was a surprise to Paul. It was a surprise to Peter. It was a surprise to, I think, all of the Jews who wind up becoming Christians that so few Jews joined the early church. At the very beginning, it was all Jews. But very quickly, Gentiles are saved in droves and there are only a few Israelites sprinkled in. That's a surprise. Here's why. God promised to save Israel. We shouldn't be too hard on, on the Jews of Paul's day for thinking it wouldn't be like this. I don't think anyone in the Old Testament thought it would be like that. They were all surprised. They all had this vision of God sending a Messiah, a Christ, which is a royal position. It's a, it's a king. God was going to send a king who would rule on the throne of David and judge the nations of the earth. That's, why Israel, that's what Israel thought was going to happen. Do you know why Israel thought that was going to happen? Because that's what God said was going to happen. Just not yet. They didn't know the not yet part. More on that in a bit. But Paul is surprised by this. And so as Paul sees Gentiles saved in droves, he thinks, man, maybe we've missed something. And so what Paul does is he starts to go back through what for him was the only scriptures he knew, the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah, the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament. And he says, man, have we missed something here? And Paul, now knowing what he knows now, predominantly it's Gentiles who are saved. He looks back up through the Old Testament and he starts to see these passages that now stick out to him. And he goes, oh yeah, this fits with God's character. I think this was God's plan all along. And that's what he wants to tell the Romans. That's what he wants to tell Jewish Christians. That's what he wants to tell us. This was God's plan all along. Don't think God isn't keeping his promises. He is. He's just not keeping him in the way Israel thought he would keep them. So most of everything else in our passage today is an Old Testament, either quote or an allusion to the Old Testament so that Paul can say, see, this was God's plan all along. And we can learn some amazing things by Paul's sort of proof text this morning. The first thing he does... Again, to prove God does not have to save every individual Israelite for God to keep his promise to save Israel. And the first thing Paul does, Paul wants to say, we, sh we probably shouldn't be surprised that God would save these filthy Gentiles because God's always been in, in, in the business of saving filthy folks. That's what Paul wants to say. Do you know why Israel... in by and large, didn't accept the gospel. 
You know what their main hang-up was in Paul's day that he found? When Paul went around and said, salvation is by faith apart from the law, Jews knew, wait a minute, that means the Gentiles can be saved and be placed on equal footing with God to us. We don't like that. Because the Jews thought the Gentiles were sort of filthy. Were sort of disgusting. And so Paul says, I want to show you, I want to remind you, through the Old Testament, God's always been in the business of saving the filthy and the disgusting. You know why? That's the only kind of people that there are. Romans 1, 2, and 3 makes that very clear. We might think we're more deserving of God's love than those people. But if we stop comparing ourselves to those people and start comparing ourselves to God, we'll see we're much closer to those people than we are to that person. So where could Paul go in the Old Testament to demonstrate God saves those other people the self-righteous consider less than or filthy or despicable. He could have gone lots of places. He could have, he could have turned to Jonah. You know the story of Jonah? The story of Jonah the prophet is less about a giant sea creature swallowing a guy, though that happens in the story. And it's more about a prophet of God, a shining example of Israel, not wanting God to save Gentiles and God saving Gentiles anyway. He could have gone there, but he didn't. Paul could have told the story of Rahab. You know the story of Rahab, the prostitute, the harlot in Jericho? God saves this prostitute and uses her to save some of Israel. He could have told the story of Ruth, who was from Moab. That was the worst kind of Gentile. And God not only saves Ruth, but he uses Ruth to save the world. She becomes the great-great-grandma of King David, which means she's a great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandma of Jesus. God has always been in the business of saving folks that self-righteous people look down upon. But instead, God, God, well, God decided to, but Paul decides to allude to the story of Hosea. Do you know the story of Hosea? I would love to preach through Hosea someday. Hosea is maybe the ultimate story that shows how God likes to save people who do not deserve to be saved. Hosea was a prophet to the northern tribes of Israel. And God showed up to Hosea, he calls him, and he says, Hosea, I want you to make your entire life an an acted out, a lived out parable of my love for filthy folks. And here's the job God gave Hosea. This was his career in a few steps. Step one, God said, Hosea, I want you to go find a prostitute and I want you to court her, woo her, win her, and marry her. And that's what Hosea did. Her name was Gomer. And if you think that's a bad name, just wait a second. Because step two, God says, Hosea, after you 
take this prostitute as your wife, when you have children, I want you to name your daughter, uh, where is it? Not loved, right there, unloved. I want you to name your little girl not loved. True story. Then one of your sons, I want you to name your son not my people. Some of you thought Adelaide and Cedric were peculiar names. And he did that. Here's my little girl. What's her name? Not loved. Here's my little boy. What's his name? Not my people. Step three, Hosea. Your wife, Gomer, is going to go back to her old job. And you're going to let her go for a while. Step four, Hosea, I want you to go find your wife, woo her, court her, and win her again in spite of the job she's doing right now. Why? So I can take the one who's not loved and turn her into one who's loved. So I can take not my people and turn them into my people. Step six, write lots of poems about it. That was, that's Hosea's job. That's his whole life. That's his career. You think you have a bad job. That's the story of Hosea. And that story was about God telling Israel, Israel, you are Gomer in that story. You're not faithful to me. You prostitute yourself by following every other thing in the world except what you should. You think, just because you're genetically related to Jacob, that you're my people, that you're loved by me. No. But one day, I, like Hosea, am going to win Israel back to myself. Why? Because I love the unlovely now, that story's about Israel. But Paul chooses to tell that story or to remind his audience of that story when he's talking about God saving the filthy Gentiles. You know why? Here's what Paul's saying. Israel, are you really surprised that God would save those filthy, low-down, unfaithful, godless Gentiles? Have you forgotten God promised to save you? Remember what God called you in Hosea? You were Gomer. You were the prostitute. God promised to save. Why would you be so surprised God would save them if God were willing to save you? Paul's saying the idea that God would save these Gentiles just fits with God's character. He saves the unlovely because that's the only kind of people there are. You know, that is why, when you read the Gospels, that is why Jesus so intentionally has all of these just really beautiful interactions with lepers and adulterers and prostitutes and tax collectors. Do you know why? Do you know why he wants us to know that's the kind of people he can save? So that you and I will know he could save me 
two. Seems like the only people Jesus won't pursue are the people who don't think they need saved. So Paul says, don't be surprised that as God starts to save people through the gospel that he's saving Gentiles. Remember the story of Hosea then? In verses 27, 28, and 29, Paul says, also don't be surprised that God only has saved a very few Israelites. Again, Israel thought when the Messiah shows up, he's going to save all of Israel. And sure, he's going to sprinkle in some Gentiles. God's fair. But it's like the opposite's true. There's only a few Jews and everyone else who gets saved are Gentiles. And, and Paul says, don't be surprised about that. And he says, check this out from Isaiah. Everything else he alludes to at first. He doesn't quote Isaiah directly at first, and then he does at the end. But he says, and Isaiah cries out on behalf of Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel are as the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. God promised Abraham, the first forefather, your descendants of this nation that I'm going to build will be like the sand of the sea. That's just a way of saying there's so many, we won't, you won't be able to count them. Paul says, Isaiah told us 700 years before Christ, there will always be lots of Israelites, but only a remnant of them will be saved. That, that's in the Old Testament. Paul says, God has told us this. We just, we just sort of missed it. God is not required to save a majority of individual Israelites in order to save Israel. Um, World War II. France and Great Britain were attacked by the Nazis, right? Would it be correct to say France and Britain were saved from Hitler and the Nazis? That'd be correct, right? Does that mean no French and British people were killed? Would you say, well, they weren't really saved because a lot of them died? No, the nation can be saved even though many individual members of the nation get killed. Isn't that true? That's Israel. God is going to save the nation, but individual members in that, of that nation are responsible to believe the gospel, just like everyone else. Israel misunderstood. And again, it's easy to see why. I, I know I've shared this one a lot, but it's a, it's a good way to see this. Christmas time, we see a verse from Isaiah all the time. Isaiah 9, 6. used to be on Christmas cards. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. You've heard that? Who's that about? What's his name? I'm going to ask again. Who's that about? All right, that's about Jesus. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Has that happened? Yeah, it happened 2,000 years ago. But we're still waiting on the rest of this. I don't know if you've noticed, but Jesus ain't running the government. Israel thought, 
fairly logically, both parts of that half of a verse will happen, like the son will be born, maybe it'll take 33 years or so, and he'll run the government. He's going to be king. He's going to have a kingdom. He's going to judge the nations and save Israel. Folks, this is still going to happen. The government is going to rest on his shoulders. He is going to return one day. They didn't know the Messiah was going to show up twice. The first time he showed up to save us, but not militarily, not our government, but to save us from the penalty our sins deserved, to die for us. Why? Because if he would have established his kingdom, none of us would qualify to get in. He would have been the only one in the whole kingdom. Because the Old Testament says you've got to be righteous to be in that kingdom. And there's no one righteous, not even one. So that's why Israel missed this truth. But, Paul says, for the Lord will execute his sentence on the earth completely and quickly. Here Paul is alluding from Isaiah to the truth I just shared with you. One day God's going to say, enough is enough. He's going to call it a wrap on this world. Jesus will return. And as he does, just before he does, God will cause national Israel to believe Jesus is our King, our Messiah. They will believe the gospel and Israel will be saved corporately. In a much cooler way than the way the Allies saved France, that's for sure. Though that was cool too. And when he returns, verse 29, um, or excuse me, that's when he, when he returns, Israel will be saved his kingdom will start. And then Paul closes with this, verse 29. Just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, you know mighty fortresses are God, that old hymn, Lord Sabaoth, his name. How many of you thought that was about the Sabbath? You can be honest. It's not. It's the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. Uh, if God had not left us many descendants, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. Here's what Paul's saying right there. The perceived problem people are having with the de demographic makeup of the church, there's so few Jews, God promised to save Israel. Israel's not accepting the gospel. Is God not keeping his promise? Paul said, you can tell God is keeping his promise to save Israel. Not because all of Israel is believing in Jesus, but because Israel still exists at all. When's the last time you ran into somebody who said, hey, where are you from? You got an accent. And they say, oh, I'm a, I'm a Phoenician. Or I'm a, uh, uh, any of the, I'm an Inca. Anybody ever hear say, I'm, a, I'm an Inca. I'm an Aztec. You never met any of those people. You know why? They don't exist anymore. Like most ancient civilizations, they're just gone. Israel is this tiny little civilization that everyone always hates and tries to destroy. And guess what? They're still there. Why? Because God promised to save them. Last verse, Paul says, you want proof that God promised to, to save Israel? There's still an Israel. That's the proof. 
Now that's our passage. Fortunately for all of us, we're going to poke our heads out of the out of weeds next week, and Paul's going to go straight up gospel on us next week for the next two weeks. I know some of this has been very difficult to sort of trudge through. But there's some incredible stuff we can learn. And I think even this passage points us to the table that we're going to gather around and share communion together with. Um, This passage points in a pretty cool way, I think, to that. What do we learn from this passage? First, we're reminded none of us deserve to be rescued by God. Compared to God, we are all like Gomer. We are all born not his people. Through faith, he makes us his people. Second, God continues to save the filthy and the undeserving. Praise God, because I wouldn't have had a chance if he were not in that business. Nor would you. And third, we're just reminded, God will keep all of his promises even when we cannot tell how he's doing it. I'm going to pray, and in just a minute, uh, while I pray, the musicians are going to come up, and we're going to sing while the, while the guys pass out communion. I didn't mention this earlier. I just want to share with you. We, we celebrate what's called open communion here, usually, which just means this. If you believe the gospel, if you believe your standing before God is okay, not because of the way you've lived, but because of the way he lived, if you don't have anything to worry about when you die because he died for you in your place, and I invite you to to share this. We usually hold uh, the elements, the bread, and, and take it together. If you're not sure, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just pass the, the, the tray on. Or if you're not comfortable, because we're passing for the first time in a long time here, if you're not comfortable um, for any reason, it's okay. You don't have to partake. But uh, let's, let's pray, and then we'll gather around the table together. Father God, you have reminded us today of the kind of folks you've always been in the business of saving. And it's the, the immoral the unpleasant, the at times unfaithful. God, thank you that your faithful and good and righteous son died under the penalty we deserve. It's the only way folks like us can be saved. And as we prepare to gather around your table together, and as the guys come forward to to pass out the bread Lord, we want to spend some time, as you commanded us to do, remembering what you did for us. Remembering the price that you paid. You gave your life as a ransom for many. And we just want to spend some time remembering what you did that you might make us who were not your people into your people us who should not be loved by you, you made us loved by you through dying, through sending your son to die in our place. Bless our time of communion with the bread in Jesus' name. Amen.